Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What Happens in the Woods is a true crime podcast. We discuss events that are often violent in nature. Listener's discretion is advised. There is a side of crime that rarely gets mentioned, at least that we've noticed, and that is what the family of a criminal goes through after the crimes come to light. Now that's not to say it never gets mentioned. You hear of family members that proclaim their relative is a good person who did a bad thing. They ask for leniency. Hell, even Ted Bundy's own mother gave a statement during his trial in Florida asking for her son to be spared the death penalty. We all know what he did. But there are other relatives who acknowledge that while they love the person accused of the crimes, something horrible was done and justice is deserved. It is an incredibly hard fact to reconcile that a close, and beloved family member could do something that hurts others. As we've mentioned before, and it bears restating, we believe these family members are a type of victim to the person's crimes. Their lives are interwoven with a criminal. Everything changes when that comes to light from that moment on. The lasting effect with everyone involved is far and deep. The question is, do the family members of a man charged with murder deserve to be thought of as victims? Or is it inconsequential in respect to the person whose lives were taken and the families that mourn them? This episode, we talk about the man the news and media dubbed the coin shop killer, who was apprehended in 1990. His name, Charles T. Sinclair. Years after his story ended, his family was still left to cope and make sense of all that had happened. What does that look like? And should we care? This is True Crime Podcast, What Happens in the Woods, with your host, Jess and Bryce. Let's get started. Hey, friends. We are moving right along with our fourth season of the podcast. We hope you're all doing well and good. Hi, Bryce. Hello. <laughs> Hello. You always you always do this weird pause like you don't think I'm gonna acknowledge you or are you not are you not ready to be acknowledged? No, that's no. I'm acknowledging. Okay. I'm acknowledging. <laughs> okay. Hello. <laughs> What's new? Uh, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> okay. 
Nothing. <laughs> it's November. It's fall. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Got to cook a turkey. Yeah. Well, it's not Thanksgiving yet. Not it's yet. coming. It's coming. When this releases, it'll be six sleeps. Six sleeps. <laughs> okay. Remember when you were a kid and you were like, I'm so excited. I want to go now. I can't wait. Your parents would be like, it's this many sleeps away. No. Oh, my mom did. My parents didn't do that. Oh, sorry. I'm all right. <laughs> You're not traumatized. Nope. <laughs> uh, yeah. Busy times, lots of holidays. Family. Lots of family time. Yeah. We hope that you guys are able to kind of slow down a little bit and enjoy that, you know, that time with your family because that's most important. And speaking of important people, Bryce just celebrated a birthday. Oh, stop it. <laughs> it's your birth month. No, I had a birthday. Uh, whatever. It was it was kind of lackluster this year. For you, I mean. Why is that? No, fine. I was sad for you. Why is it sad for me? Because we didn't, I mean, it wasn't. Wasn't all exciting and adventurous, and it doesn't have to be. <laughs> Are you over a, it? Yeah. Are you over birthdays? Oh, oh. I was I was fine. All we did was Mara cooked me burger, and I was happy with that. I'm a simple man. Yeah, and and you're forgetting like the most valuable part of that whole thing. What's that? Your pumpkin, your Costco oh. <laughs> fucking pumpkin yeah. swirled cheesecake. I guess, I guess there was a secret mission that I wasn't aware of. And I didn't know that Costco had made these pumpkin cheesecakes. And yeah, for like years now, there's, they're like, I don't know. They're legendary. Are they? Apparently there's like whole blogs about them. Well, I guess. I don't know. So, I mean, that I have never heard of them. Yeah campers if you've heard of them let us know <laughs> and if you haven't this is your call to action That's go right. get yourself a pumpkin cheesecake because it was pretty good right i mean i didn't have any but it was good it was good That's so right. i mean i like their pumpkin pie too i know you weren't a fan last year but the I one that not. we had recently was good i thought so maybe we just had a one-off that was not good maybe yeah because that's what Haley ended up having was pumpkin pie. I don't know. Y'all aren't into the cake, but that's okay. No, that's okay. All right. Um, I I also just wanted to take a moment to you know say thank you so much for everybody that wished us both happy birthday because they're so close together. Um, we love you guys for taking the time to you know come on social media and just say happy birthday and you know say hi or how much you love the show or whatever that you've, you know, that you're enjoying us and just wishing us well. And it, it, it makes us feel like good. It makes us feel like, you know, family. Yeah. Yeah. We love it. And that's what this time of year is about. Yes. All right. Do you have any updates? Australia back in the lead. Australia. Australia. Welcome yeah. back. Welcome back. All right. So before we get going into the actual case I have today for you, I have an update on a huge episode that we did in our second season. Mm-hmm. We did an episode on Ra- Robert Hansen, uh, the butcher baker. Oh. 
You know, yes. he was, yeah, the disgust. <laughs> what was that? You were shocked, like, oh, we did? Oh. That was a weird response. No, just like <clears throat> an update. Oh, an update, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, as you may recall, as you should recall, if you've listened to the episode, he was a disgusting human piece of shit serial killer from Alaska. Um, there were victims of his that were never identified because he... They were sex workers and he couldn't be bothered to, you know, treat anybody with some humanity. So they were left out in the wilderness and, you know, no identification, no, no means to identify them back in the, this was very late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Yeah. The the most disgusting part for me was like, he just let them go. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he would release them like they were game and then he would hunt them down yeah or shoot them and that was part of his gratification yeah yeah absolutely a disgusting piece of human fucking shit there were um two victims who were not identified all these years later um they were able to identify some of them after his arrest uh but two of them still remained unidentified one was known as a Klutna Annie, and the other was known as Horseshoe Harriet. Mm-hmm. So just two months ago, the FBI was finally able to give a name to Horseshoe Harriet and give answers to her family. DNA that was taken from her exhumed body was finally matched by genetic genealogy um, by the now widely known company Parabon Nanolabs. The family members um, were found to have been that were connected to her were living in Arkansas and Alaska. So, Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, the family of the missing 19-year-old Robin Pe- Pelkey was finally given closure after 38 years. So it, at that time, her family was located in Alaska. So 38 years. They went by, you know, I'm sure painfully slow, not knowing what happened to this girl. Yeah. So she was killed in 1979 she was the um, the victim that was found by power line workers. They were putting in new power lines, and she was found kind of in like this marshy area yeah. in 1980. And Hansen claimed responsibility for her, but again, like I said, he didn't know anything about her. He didn't know who she was, didn't leave any sort of identification, nothing, and just couldn't fucking be bothered so after all this time, the family, you know, sadly, but also fortunately, has definitive answers as to what happened. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that's, I think that's the best part. It is the best part. Um, it still blows my mind that DNA is being used like this. You know, that I, we're able to identify these people from decades ago yeah whose murders and crimes have gone unsolved their disappearances have gone unsolved and and i'm sure at some point the family just gives up you know where where's the hope and you know genetic genealogy is changing the face of that yeah and it's 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 pretty awesome that it's advancing this fast too i mean it doesn't seem fast but well yes and no i mean it doesn't but given that the the technology itself is only 
I mean, it's still in its infancy. So, it, yeah. you know, what it's accomplishing and what they're being able to use it for. And if yeah. it continues to be this way, it's it's really going to change the face of like unsolved crimes. Well, it, yeah. it already has, but it really is going to be an, a, you know, a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. So Kluna Annie is still the last victim of Hansen's that has not been identified as yet, but her DNA has also been extracted. They also exhumed her body, her remains. Mm-hmm. So there's hope. There's hope that at some point there's going to be a match there. All right. You ready for the case? I'm ready. This week, we're taking a look at a criminal who caught my eye on an episode of uh, something called Evil Lives Here. It's an uh, ID channel show, investigative investigation discovery show. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, randomly watched that while just sitting. (laughs) And, And these are the things that I do in my off time. And this is why I am the way I am. So this this show, this particular episode, uh, was a firsthand account of a family's life on the run, not really knowing exactly why they were on the run yeah. um, until the father, the patriarch of the family, is caught and arrested by the FBI. Oh. And then everything becomes, you know, into focus. Yeah. The criminal we will be discussing uh, is named Charles T. Sinclair, but he also used the alias J.C. Weir or Jim Stockton. Okay. Yeah, there may be more, um, but those are the main ones that I've seen mentioned. I haven't, I, I don't know of any other ones. He was officially charged with murders of two people in Billings, Montana in 1990. It's possible that there are up to 10 or more other murders that he committed during a 10-year span of crime. And they're ranging in various states. He um, is referred to as a nomadic killer. And yeah. and he does have motive. He does have an MO, yeah. um, which I'll kind of mention later on. But he, it, it wasn't just like opportunistic crime that that wasn't the only thing mm-hmm. he traveled to do these things oh. and and there's been at least four um, maybe five other cases where he was you know linked as a top suspect as a killer or as you know as the person that committed the crime but in recent years he was cleared and others have been charged or convicted of those crimes we even covered one of these crimes in a previous episode, and I'll I'll give you I'll pl- tell you where that comes into play too. Okay. So a little info on Charles. He was born the youngest of four children to a family in I think it's Jal or Yall. I'm saying Jal, New Mexico. Okay. His father passed on when Charles was a young boy, which was hard on the family. Um, but his mom was able to support them all by running a coin laundry business and taking in assorted ironing, mending, whatever, you know, she could get on the side. He was considered an average student, just an all around normal kid. Mm-hmm. I found mention that he served time in the Navy um, during Vietnam. So he was a veteran. Because of the laundry business and the exposure to all the coins, Charles kind of had this hobby of coin collecting. 
1970, the hobby turned into a business when he opened a coin shop using some of his own collection in the store. This was in Hobbs, New Mexico, which is just kind of like a hop skipping away from where he was born. Um, The community welcomed it. He was a likable guy. Everybody got along with him. He was always remembered as like an outgoing and easy person to talk to. And this turned out to be a great business for him. He soon uh, got married and had a family. His wife, Debbie, and his two children, Pam and Michael, were involved in the family business. Mm-hmm. And over the years, this expanded into selling uh, like collectible or high-value guns. This also then turned into a rebranding of the business altogether into like a sportsman's warehouse type of deal. The new business was named Shooter Supply. So Charles was an avid outdoorsman. He had quite a few um, hunting buddies in the community. Even local law enforcement members would go out and go hunting with him. He was well-liked. Like I said, he was known by many. So when the business was burnt down in an explosion and a fire, the community was dumbfounded when Charles was the main suspect in an investigation for arson. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Charles himself was slightly injured in that fire. His account of things uh, was basically that the day prior, they were cleaning something, some solvent spilled on the carpet. He comes in the next day. He's going to clean it with a carpet cleaner. He plugs in the carpet cleaner, and it sparks, and everything ignites. Okay. Right. He says he stayed... You know, inside trying to get the fire under control. He didn't want to leave it. He wanted, you know, lose his business to this. But at some point, he had to get out and give up. And he exited the building through the back door. He was taken to the hospital. He was treated for smoke inhalation. But, you know, he he recovers. This story, however, that he gives doesn't sit right with someone. So the police begin investigating. And it seems that Charles was living a life beyond his means. And there was not enough evidence to make an investigator like question if, uh, you know, there was other things at play. But they definitely suspected him of this fire. And thus, the family's life on the run began. And this is where I want to pick up with the interview that his daughter gives for the Evil Lives Here episode I mentioned. She gave a very personal account of their lives during the episode. And what struck out to me about her and and how she relayed things was you're looking at this aspect, this flipped coin, if you will, this other side of the the story of this family member who she adored, she loved, was her father. Yeah. And there were some things that came up that she questioned, she was confused about later on. Mm -hmm. But she, even knowing now what, you know, his crimes were, she still, at that time, she, she never would have thought that of him. He, he was, it was just hearing her account of what their lives were during this time when they go on the run yeah, that really was something that stood out to me. The things that she recalls and discusses are mostly like memories of red flags. Mm -hmm. 
or things that should have been red flags, but being a child, she didn't know any better. Yeah. And even though there's, you know, all these weird things, she talks about how they were a family, how their dad was with them. Her interview is just kind of a very clear look at who Charles Sinclair was to her and how the realization that he was living this other life and doing these horrible things doesn't fit with the person that she knew and, you know, who she thought he was. Yeah. According to Pam, soon after the fire, the family traveled to a few places. They ended up staying in Montana for a couple of months. Then one day, Charles tells the family, let's go to Washington. We can go to a few places. Once we find one that we like, we'll move there. So again, the family packs up, moves to Washington. There's an event that sticks out to Pam that happened when she was around 10 that she says is when she began to think something was off. Something's wrong. Okay. The family was staying in a hotel room and Charles and Debbie went out for a time running errands or, or something. They left. That left Pam and her brother there alone and the phone began to ring. She says a person asked for Mr. Weir and she says, you know, nope, sorry, you got the wrong number. And she hangs up. She doesn't think anything of it. The person called back two more times asking for Mr. Weir or Mr. and Mrs. Weir. And she again was like, yeah, no, I don't know who you're talking about. That's that's not us. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Then someone knocks on the door. Is that regular knock or police knock? And that's a police knock. <laughs> the kids don't want to answer it. They're, you know, they're scared to answer it because yeah. they're by themselves. They don't know what the fuck is going on. And they they finally do because the person that's knocking is not letting up. And they open it to find a police officer and a hotel employee. Uh-oh. The officer begins asking them who they are. Where where are their parents? What's going on here? Like, are, should you be in this room? Mm-hmm. And he thinks that they're runaways or they've been kidnapped. Um, he's, you know, he's asking them what's going on. And they're just like, we're our our parents aren't here right now, but we're in our room. Like, this is our room. This is our stuff. We're just yeah. hanging out. And the officer then tells them, like, hey, I need proof that you're here with your parents. I need proof that you are who you're saying you are. And as the kids are, you know, scrambling, they're like, well, what what the hell could we give them? Yeah. You know, let's let's we're they're searching in suitcases. They're I, what are what are kids going to give to prove to somebody that they are who they are? Yeah. Yeah. Um, as that's happening in walk, Charles and Debbie, mm-hmm. Charles confirms these are his kids. They're yeah. both showing their IDs, which have the last name Sinclair on them, telling the officer, you know, Hey, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what the confusion is, but this is our room. These are our kids. And then the officer asks, well, okay, that's great. But why is your hotel room reserved in the name Weir? Oh. Yeah, Charlie uh, or Charles smoothly tells them it was for privacy. They wanted privacy, so they they didn't want their name to be out there publicly for whatever reason. And this seems to clear everything up, and the officer and the employee leave. And it was after this that Pam says her father sat them both down, her and her brother, and told them, "Your last name is now Weir. Forget the name Sinclair. Never mention it again. Yeah. You cannot tell anybody." This is our last name now. This is fucking weird. It is fucking weird. Especially, and, you know what I mean? Like kids, they're very innocent. They don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden you're like, hey, change your last name. That, you know. Right. It's not normal. Right. 
And and that's exactly it. You know, the kids are confused. They don't understand. Uh, they're they're asking why, um, especially given you know the phone had just rang three times and somebody mm. was asking for a Mister Weir. They'd never heard of that name. They don't know. And he says that there's police in New Mexico that are trying to frame him for the fire that burned down the family business. He's afraid that they're going to be found and he doesn't think he's going to be believed or treated fairly. So they're, they're, you know, going to change your last name so that they stay safe. And Pam kind of thinks like, what do you mean? Like the police are there. They're supposed to help you. You know what I mean? This is a kid. You're taught that if in an emergency, you go to a police officer, you find a police officer, they're supposed to help you. So she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand, but she's also a kid in the eighties and you didn't ask shit about grown people's business. You know, you didn't, if somebody told you something, you're that, that was that. So it, you know, it's kind of filed under a weird circumstance Uh and now the Sinclair Sinclair family is, is the weird family (laughs) and that's that. Okay, where? How do you yeah. spell that? W e i r. Okay. Uh, this would be far from the last time that a strange occurrence would happen that left Pam confused. They would stay in Washington for a few years. As mm-hmm. Pam got older, she says she became more aware of odd things, like the fact that neither of her parents worked. You know, they they came from New Mexico, where working was their life. That was their business. That was their livelihood. Now all of a sudden, they don't work at all. Yeah. Yeah. They had a roof over their head. They had all their needs met. Uh-huh. But, you know, where'd the money come from? She obviously knew enough. She was old enough to know her friend's parents had to work. Mm-hmm. And her her parents had previously worked. Maybe they're independently wealthy. Right. There was also weird trips that our dad would make a few times a year. This would be one, two, three weeks of time that he would be gone. He always stated they were, you know, quote unquote business trips, but he never said for what business. And she recalled times that he would come home and his appearance would have been changed. So there was a time where he came home without a beard. There was a time, um, and he always typically had a full beard and mustache. There was a time he came home, he only had the mustache. On another occasion, he had dyed his hair to be darker and the cut was changed. And it was odd to her. And she, you know, she would say, hey, why do you look so different? And he would, you know, play it off and make a, you know, funny joke out of it. And he always just brushed it off. She mentions another time after one of these trips when she got up late one night and caught her dad cleaning an assortment of coins. And it occurred to her that maybe he was dealing in the silver and gold trade. And from what she says, her grandfather, I'm assuming it was her mom's dad um because his is dead you know his dad had passed at, at at a young age um so her grandfather was in the trade so she was kind of familiar with seeing coins and jewelry out and being cleaned and, and packaged yeah when she asked what he was doing he again brushed it off told her to go back to bed for you know a naturally curious kid all of this is odd mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make sense to you but you don't quite know why yeah Pam claims she looks back at it all and it's, you know, it's very clear now what it all meant. She just, at the time, she had no idea. 
So the family is in Washington for a little over four years when all of a sudden Charles again gathers a group and he claims they're moving to Alaska. Pam at this time had just finished her freshman year and was just plain mad about the move. And you could imagine, I mean, teenagers are, they don't like change. (laughs) You know, it's hard enough. High school's hard enough. Nobody wants to move in high school. So she's pissed. And she's, you know, why? Why do we have to do this? I don't understand. We're fine here. Mm -hmm. Leave me alone here. Yeah. And he just, he wouldn't give an explanation. He just said it was a new adventure and they were going. The family made their way up to a very remote area near Kenny Lake in Alaska, which is about 40 miles south of Valdez. They all settled in. They got comfortable with a quiet life, you know, like a rustic lifestyle. They were isolated. I think she says they were on like 160 acres. To live on? Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Charles was still making his trips a couple of times a year to parts unknown, and the income that supported them was still a mystery to Pam, but she says even though they were living under an assumed name and there were these odd things, the family was just kind of normal and happy. The last trip she remembers him taking would be in the spring of 1990, and this time he was gone for about three months, which was the longest he had ever been gone. And when he returned, he was in a great mood. He was very attentive to uh, to the family, you know, just in good spirits and and she just couldn't really, there was just kind of a marked change about his demeanor. It was just more upbeat. Yeah. And then one night, a strange man comes walking up the road to their home, asking about property that may be for sale nearby. Uh-oh. Right. Now, I I have lived in Alaska and I have been in some remote areas and people don't just walk up to a home in a remote area on a hundred and something acres. Yeah. It's, it's not going to happen. And they definitely don't come and ask the neighbors about property nearby. Like it's, it's not happening. Okay. So to do, I mean, in, in doing that, just walking by yourself up a lone road you're either asking to be shot or you're asking for a wild animal to kill you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not it, given where they are, the elements and, and everything. It's stupid to walk by yourself. Right. No, yeah. you just don't. Charles talks to the man and by Pam's account, she knew it was just odd. And her dad's reaction was the most telling sign of that. Instead of the normal guy who could chat it up with anybody Charles was quiet and reserved. He answered the guy's questions with very short replies. Eventually, the guy leaves, walking back to wherever he came from, and the family closed themselves up in the house. The next morning, August 16th, 1990, Pam was awakened by her dad, and she says it was such an out-of-the-ordinary thing that she should have known something bad was coming. She says that her dad tells her he loves her and wants her to remember that. And this is something that he never really did. I, they were, you know, a happy family, but they didn't really, you know, express love yeah. to, to one another. So they didn't really discuss that. And it was just very out of the ordinary for him to do that and make a point of doing that. She proceeded with the day. She got up, she got ready. And when she was in the kitchen getting breakfast, um, it was her and her mom and her dad. The phone rings. Charles answers it. 
He had a very brief and quiet conversation with whoever was on the line. He hung up the phone and immediately claims he had to go. He had to get out. No explanation, just got to go. Okay. He grabbed his hat, keys, wallet, and a jacket and left with a quick goodbye. And it was the last time the family would see him in person. And there is so much more to this, but I will get into that after this break. Oh. <laughs> with Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As you may have guessed, the reason that the family did not see Charles again was because he was arrested. For? Well, we'll get into that. There's a lot. Okay, you already made me wait for the break. Yeah, no, you're you're gonna be waiting, and <laughs> and you're gonna you're gonna need to uh, keep track. You're gonna need to pay attention closely. There's a lot I'm gonna throw at you. Okay, okay. I want to backtrack a little bit to the crimes. We're gonna talk about them and what led up to the rest of uh, Charles Sinclair. What the outcome of all of this is. We'll start back in April of 1990 when a Murray, Utah coin shop was visited regularly by a man who gave his name as Jim Stockton. Uh Jim was a friendly man standing tall at about six foot three. He was pretty distinctive to look at. Uh He claimed that he was a farmer from Texas and he was looking to get into valuable coins for investing. The co-owner at Legacy Rare Coins, Kelly Finnegan, who had been speaking primarily to, to Jim was used to seeing him come in and usually, you know, they would spend a good time of, of amount of time. They're just kind of shooting the shit. Uh-huh. Kelly uh, thought nothing of it on May 4th when Jim came in. It was close to closing time and he just began the routine. He's putting away things in safes. He's locking up. He's putting drapes over cases so they can't be seen by passersby and through the windows it's just the closing routine. And at no point was he weirded out by Jim still hanging around. Jim Stockton. Yeah. But as he has his back turned to Jim while sorting out the safe, he hears a mutter behind him say, you dumb bastard. And in the second that he turned his head to ask what, Jim fired a gun that struck him in the forehead. Well, the bullet struck him in the forehead. Yeah. Kelly drops to the floor. Yeah. Kelly drops to the floor. He's still alive and he's alert, but Mm -hmm. he has enough presence of mind to lay still and essentially play dead. He's not really sure what the hell is going on. Um, But, you know, if somebody points a gun at your face and shoots you, they don't mean you good. (laughs) So (laughs) he's laying there. And, you know, just trying to take stock of what he can do or what what is going on. And then the Texan farmer named Jim Stockton proceeded to clear out $60,000 worth of coins and other things from the store. He can hear him pace him back and forth. He knows that he crosses over his body a few times. Mm -hmm. And he's hoping 
that, you know, the guy's buying that he's dead. So he's definitely in shock as, you know, Jim gets his shit and, and packed and he takes bags out of the store. Kelly, the, the, the co-owner kind of is like, well, what do I do? So he thinks if he's lucky enough that Jim just leaves the store, of course, he's, you know, going to get up immediately, call 911, call the police. Yeah. He's very lucky because if he hadn't turned when he turned, if that guy hadn't muttered something and the owner heard it, he would have been shot in the back of his head. And who, who knows at that point if he would have survived. But he survived it? He survived. Wow. He was very lucky that the bullet hit where it hit. It, it kind of indented in his skin on his forehead, but it, it did not um, cause Pen- lasting damage. He doesn't have any brain damage. Didn't um, penetrate? Not really. Holy shit. Yeah. Police are able to come with emergency services and they gather all the info they can, you know, get on, on anyone who had contact with this guy, with this Jim Stockton, yeah, who had come into the uh, coin shop over the past couple months. They learned that the gun used was a 22 caliber handgun. Oh, well, that's why. And they uh, get a composite sketch that goes out to multiple state agencies, but there seems to be no immediate leads that help in the capture of this would-be killer. Yeah. And then in July, just an, another couple months later, another coin shop in Montana has a similar crime occur. Unfortunately, this time it did not end as well. The owner and his employee were found deceased in the business, having both been shot in the head execution style with a twenty-two handgun. Sixty-year-old mm. uh, Charles Sparbo, who was uh, considered like a larger-than-life fixture in Billings, he was a self made uh you know millionaire basically yeah he had made a fortune in real estate and investing and he was just kind of known to be a a rough and rowdy outspoken kind of guy yeah um you know a little a little obnoxious rich people can kind of get away with it he's just a little obnoxious Mm -hmm. his employee that was found with him Catherine newstorm she had worked for him for about 25 years altogether. She was uh, kind of considered like his assistant, but she assisted him in the coin shop. This shop was uh, a hobby for him. Yeah. He didn't need it. No. He had, you know, investments and in, in real estate dealings in Montana and other places. This was his this was his hobby. Yeah. And she, you know, ended up working most of the time there with him. She was said to be a very friendly and loyal employee, a hard worker. Yeah. When the two are found dead by the owner's son, the investigation begins. They noticed that upwards of $54,000 in merchandise was unaccounted for and stolen. There wasn't much in the way of evidence that led to the person responsible. So investigators began, you know, interviews. They talk to family, they talk to friends, they talk to customers who've come and gone in the store. And Jim Sparbo, the owner's son, he was able to provide a good bit of info that was a solid lead. Jim had been at the coin shop the day prior before closing. Mm-hmm. And he remembered that the the man who, you know, there was a man who came in just at closing who had come in a few times before. Yeah. 
He noted particularly that he thought it was odd that the would-be customer had parked his silver Pontiac very far away from the actual store, but was definitely walking towards the business. Uh-huh. He remembered that his dad, Charles, had commented on this guy, who was a tall, big man, very distinguishable, had been uh, by a couple of times before and was just kind of making a nuisance of himself, kind Mm of. Um, Apparently, this man was a farm owner from a nearby town of Laurel. And he was uh, his story was that he was hoping after the sale of his farm, he would be able to invest uh, some words of one hundred and thirty thousand dollars into gold. What was perhaps the most notable of all of this to the people in the store and who, you know, noticed him was that his hands looked like they had never seen a hard day's work in their life. (laughs) A police teletype, uh, which is for anybody who doesn't know, is kind of like a fax. It's an interagency fax that police would send to one another before the days of, you know, emails could just jot multiple information over to, to everybody in the world. They yeah. had the teletype. So this went out to police in multiple states uh, um, of a very tall man, about 6'3 or 6'4, weighing 240 pounds to 260 pounds. He was noted to have a large scar on his right hand and a gap in his front two teeth. Okay. Other connections soon were made to murders and robberies at coin shops in previous years in various other states. There's one in Kansas City, Missouri. A shop owner by the name of Leroy Hoffman was killed in a very similar fashion, and what amounted to be several thousand dollars worth of coins was taken. This was on March 12, 1988. His wife would later remember that Hoffman had mentioned a man who had recently been hanging around the store was looking to sell a large amount of coins that he had. This man was also a local farmer looking to trade and make profit in gold. Local farmer. Yep. After the teletype made it to Spokane, here in Washington, a detective who had been investigating a homicide from July 14th, 1987, contacted the Billings, Montana Police Department. The victim in this was Leo Cashette, He was a coin shop owner who had been shot in the head and killed. The store had also been robbed of a large amount of valuable coins. That was in Spokane? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. As the police departments are communicating yet, another Washington murder is added to the list. David Sutton was found shot and killed in January 27th of 1980. It had gone, at this point, 10 years unsolved. In his, this was uh, taking place in his antique store. $80,000 worth of silver coins were taken. Oh, wow. Right. Then a similar crime in Mishawaka, Indiana is added to this growing list. Mm -hmm. The manager of a coin shop named Thomas Rohr was found shot and killed in August of 1985. Lastly, investigators from the city of Vacaville in California gave evidence. Huh? Where's that at? Oh, shut up. (laughs) Gave evidence of another very similar crime. On November 5th, 1986, Reuben Lucky Williams was found shot and killed, um, shot in the head again. His shop had also been ransacked and thousands of dollars in coins was gone. They had no leads on any of these crimes. They had been going years with no 
no leads, no potential. So the MO was clear. The customer would come in over a few days with the story of how he was looking to either buy or sell coins. Mm -hmm. He would make chit chat. He would get familiar with the store, get familiar with the layout, the people. He would come in one last time near closing time to do what he intended to do, which was kill and rob. So then, uh, you know, a lucky break happens to come through. There's a coin shop owner in Spokane who had gone to the police with information that he recognized the man in question in this composite sketch Mm -hmm. as a potential customer who had been in his shop in April of 1989. So just the year prior. His name was J.C. Weir. They were, were able to search the name and found that there was a car registered to J.C. Weir in the state of Washington mm-hmm. that was a silver Pontiac. Uh-oh. And that, uh, his Washington license had been surrendered in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. From that, they were able to get an address in Wyoming. However, this turns out to be a fake address. From what they were able to get, you know, it's great. It's a great line of leads, but it seems to come to an end until the Wyoming sheriffs were able to locate this silver Pontiac parked at the local airport. Oh. What they find in there is crazy. So the car is registered to J.C. Weir in Washington. Mm-hmm. What they find is a handgun with a silencer. It's a twenty-two, And little bits of paper wrappings that you would roll coins in that match a description from the Billings, Montana coin shop where the two people were murdered. They also learned that J.C. Weir flew from Wyoming to Anchorage on August 2nd. So just a few days, uh, the Billings, Montana murders happened on the 31st of July. Yeah. So just two days later, he's back in Alaska. Oh. After some feelers went out, it was discovered that Debbie, Weir's wife, was able to sell about $15,000 in gold after picking him up at the airport. Oh. All of this is huge. It's a huge link to the Billings, Montana murders. Yeah. And then in an odd type of coincidence, a detective from Jefferson County in Washington got a hold of the composite sketch. And what stood out to him was the description of the scar on the suspect's right hand. Yeah. He was working an ongoing investigation of a couple who had traveled up from California and they were missing. He had been working it for years at this point. One of the people he questioned and, you know, one of the leads that he got was that there was a man who had been frequenting a pawn shop who had a bandaged right hand and was a close match to the composite sketch and description. The connection was very loose, but as he looked more into things, he, he realized it fit. The couple, Robert and Dagmar Linton, were missing from Stockton, California. The last time they were seen was at a campground on the Olympic Peninsula on August 22nd, 1986. They were in like the early stage of the stage of their retirement. This was like their third or fourth trip with their new travel trailer that they had taken. Their family back home was supposed to be hearing from them frequently. And up until they hit Washington, they did. Mm -hmm. So they made this drive over the course of a month to travel up to see the world's fair that was in Vancouver. Their truck was found abandoned on the 23rd at SeaTac at the airport here in Seattle. Yeah. 
Police found blood splatter in the back of the truck bed. Um, it had one of those camper shells on it. Mm-hmm. They found three different types of blood. Two of them matched the Lintons. One of them they had no way of matching yet. Mm-hmm. There also was clear signs at their uh, travel trailer back at the campground that there had been a struggle that took place. And the Lintons were nowhere to be found. They had nobody. They had no leads of of where they could be. Police immediately assumed it was foul play, and the couple was more than likely dead, unfortunately. There were leads that began to come in from credit cards that were showing activity in nearby towns after their disappearances. So there was a video surveillance on one of these days where the card was used that surfaced of a tall and heavy set man with a full beard and a bandaged right hand making a purchase with that card at a music store. What do you buy? A clarinet. Psychopath. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they were able to trace it through multiple um, transactions mm-hmm. and they were getting close to finding the person. They were getting f- close to, you know, figuring out who was doing this and who possibly killed them. And then the news got a hold of this information and news and newspapers, media uh, let it out. And all, all of a sudden the purchases stopped. Oh. So it, it kind of became a, a dead end. Good job, news. Yeah, unfortunately. With that avenue gone, the detective on the case began to dig a little deeper into J.C. Weir. And he learned that Weir and his family had led very close to where the credit card had first been used at the time, you know, that this happened. And that Weir's daughter played the clarinet. Oh. He was able to find out that school records had been transferred from Washington to Alaska just the previous year. Just after that last purchase was made. Wow. Yeah. Maybe that was his bribe. Bribe. Bribe his daughter. Maybe. Hey, here's a clarinet. We're moving to Alaska. Right. Along with the possible connection to the Linton's disappearance, Washington authorities also had hopes to link the suspect, J.C. Weir, as he was known, to other unsolved crimes. And I think this is where it just comes becomes like fantastical. It's like wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. If there's just the, the smallest hint of of a connection that you can make, then you you know you're running with it because you've got nothing else. Yeah. There was an, a sexual assault case involving a real estate agent in 1986, and a second case of a couple's disappearance that happened in November of 1987. And I can't find what assault case they mean. Um, it's only briefly mentioned in one article. Mm-hmm. However, you and all of our listeners should be very familiar with the second couple's case, the murders of Canadian couple Tanya Van Kuhlenborg and Joy um, J. Cook were covered in our second season. This is not the first time I've man- mentioned them connected to another suspect. Yeah. Um, but this detective was, he was like, no, it's got to be, it's got to be him. Yeah. It's a, you know, they, they rumored him as close to where they were last seen trying Mm -hmm. to get on the ferry. This is close to where this, uh, you know, credit card had been used. It's a stretch. It's a very big stretch. Um, but you know, he's pretty sure that he's got, uh, JC Weir for the Linton's murder. Mm -hmm. You know, 
presumably and whoever killed them took their credit card and is using it. That's, that's a pretty good, you know, lead, but you can't just assume every couple that's been murdered in Washington in that area. It's this guy. Yeah. You know, you just can't, you can't assume that. So of course we know that, you know, the person charged with and convicted of the crimes was William Talbot. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it doesn't, it surprises me and it yet it doesn't that how many times their murder has been linked to suspected other people, people yeah. and, or, you know, suspected by other people. And it it's, it's so unfounded. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of goes to show to you, like to show that I, the police are, they have their hearts in the good place. I think they yeah. want to solve these crimes and they're just like, Oh, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe I'll catch a lucky break and, and it fits. And, and it just, it isn't the case. Yeah. My, my thinking was that he hadn't solved any cases in a while. And he's like, this has to be it. This has to be the connection. Maybe. Cause he, he had been working. Straws. I mean, the Lentons disappeared in 1986. This is 1990. And he, he had been working that without, a, you know, this lead, lead didn't even yeah. come until, until 1990 that he could connect JC Weir to, to those credit cards. Yeah. Yeah. In his look into Weir's background info, it was found that Weir had rented a storage shed in the town of uh, Sumas, Sumas, is it Sumas, Washington? Sure. Sumas, S-U-M-A-S. I, I should have looked that up. I apologize. When authorities were able to enter it, they found a wealth of evidence and some of, some of it was just more confusing. It just, it was like, what the fuck? The detective claims that they found the clarinet that had been purchased. Yeah. So it didn't even make it to Alaska. Oh. Yeah. Um, they find, uh, C4 explosives, Claymore landmines, a shit ton of maps, all the stuff needed to make fake IDs, items that linked him to the murder of Lucky Williams in Vacaville, California, among a variety of valuable coins and other assorted things. But the most curious thing that stuck out was there was this barrel stuck up um, in that was uh, a possible connection to a sexual assault and murder of a young 18-year-old girl that took place in November of 1989. So yet another possible link to another possible case. Mandy uh, Stavik was visiting her family over the Thanksgiving break. Yeah. And uh, this was in 1989. After, you know, huge meal, she had gone out with the family dog for a run. She never came home. Her body was found three days later in the Nooksack River, entirely nude. What was found in the storage shed was supposedly, quote, a yellow flowered bedsheet and pillows matching the linen used to strangle and wrap the body, as the Jefferson County detective claimed. And he he was so sure of this, he told the news. I mean, it was printed. Oh, wow. There was also an old yearbook along with the bedsheets, and in it, Stavik's picture had been circled. It turned out that there was this possible connection between uh, Weir's son, Michael, mm-hmm. and Mandy. Maybe they went to high school together. I don't know if that was confirmed. Uh, it's it's a possibility. Yeah. 
Um, but that was, that was this detective's, you know, finding. Yeah. However, the investigators who were, you know, looking into Mandy Stavick's death claimed that she was not found wrapped in anything. There was no linens of any type found on her body. Oh. So where this connection came from, they completely discredit it. They claim, you know, it's completely unfounded. And they were still actively searching for the true person responsible. And they, they at no point did they feel that it was weird. Okay. But like I said, this detective broadly just broadly made this statement and put it out there to people as fact. Mm-hmm. And it created kind of a confusion for a little bit. Um, Mandy's uh, killer was found. It was not right away. It did take decades yeah. for her killer to be found as well. And it it's tragic because it it's not, while it was found, her, her family doesn't have closure. Okay. Yeah. And I, I could go off on that. That's that, that could be a whole separate episode. Or is it? <laughs> <laughs> then there is also a similar murder that took place in Pantago, Texas in 1985. A coin shop was robbed and the owner, Robert Roseberg, had been murdered. He was shot with a 22 caliber pistol in the head three times. Authorities were arrested um, there, arrested a man by the name of Forrest Ethington for the crime. And he was tried and convicted of the crime. Oh, wow. However, his sentence was overturned during an appeal, and they had no other suspects. The authorities began to claim then, once all of this came out with J.C. Weir, that Ethington had a connection to Weir and had contracted out the kill and robbery. So they're trying to still say, it was this man. Yeah. He just contracted the kill, and we think that he's been working with Weir this whole time on these other murders, too. Okay, so where's the evidence? None. There's none. It's fantastical. Again, you are so locked into the idea that this person has committed this crime even after a an appeals board has said, yeah, this isn't this doesn't make sense. Like, how the fuck did you do this? Yeah, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense. It doesn't add up. The conviction is overturned and you still can't let it go. Yeah. Yeah. So with all of these possible connections to Weir and all of these twists and turns, authorities turn to the FBI. Multiple agencies, you know, converge in billings and they're sharing information. And what they realize is that the FBI, FBI had all of these murders yeah. and all of this info mm-hmm. all along. But at no point did anybody at the FBI make a connection of coin shop murders. Oh, wow. People murdered, shot in the head. 22 caliber. And 22 caliber. And, and you know, the the robbery that, you know, ensued afterwards. Yeah. Nobody at the FBI over a 10-year span decided to kind of look at these things and see if there's a connection. It took this last killing, this last murder. Yeah. And these multiple states coming together and saying, well, we've got this. What do you have? What do you, you know, what... 
what could we look for next? What's the next possible lead? Where else could this guy have gone? What else could connect him or can, you know, be a connection and link all of these cases? And the states were doing this. On the their states own. were doing yeah. it. During this time, police tracked down the man who is actually named Jimmy Charles Weir. He's, he's the real deal. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not their guy, obviously. But they are closer to finding the man who has most likely committed all of these murders. Turns out, J.C. Weir isn't a killer, but he is an old friend of the killer. Oh. Charles Sinclair, you know, the real person who's been on the run for all these years, yeah. moving his family all over, went to school with Weir. And they were longtime friends. This guy had no idea. He's living his life in in like Utah or Idaho or yeah. something. Unknowingly, his friends out there using his name and committing crimes. Yeah. Yeah. He also didn't know that he was in Washington or had moved to Alaska. He had no idea of any of that. Such good friends. I mean, you're right. They were all hunting buddies. I'm I'm pretty sure after he left New Mexico. You know, after Charles moved everybody from New Mexico and they went on the run, mm. they weren't, the kids weren't allowed to have contact with anybody from their old life, not even their grandparents. Oh. Pam uh, talks about her, you know, wanting to write her grandparents a letter and talk to her grandparents. And she would write a letter, put it in an envelope, address it, and she would give it to her dad. And she'd be like, hey, do you have a stamp? I need to, I want to mail this to grandma and grandpa. Yeah. And he would always say, I don't have any right now, but I'll get some and I'll mail it for you. Oh, of course you would. Right. So even, even you know, her relatives, people that were important to her in her life, they weren't allowed to have any contact with them. They never knew what happened to the Sinclair family. It's, it's, kind of, it's really sad. Yeah. So after all that, it's, it's a matter of time until, you know, FBI in Alaska was able to locate the real person, Charles Sinclair. As mentioned before the break, the morning of August 16th, 1990, Charles was taken into custody. He was charged with the murder of Charles Sparbo and Catherine's, um, Catherine Newstrom, as well as the attempted murder of Kelly Finnegan. When he was taken into custody, he gave the name. They, you know, they were trying to, uh, they're trying to get information from him. And he's saying his name is Jimmy Weir. Mm-hmm. He, it's, I don't even know if he knew his real name at that yeah, point. He's convinced himself of his own lies. Right. They find a pocket watch in his in his pocket on his you know in his possession, mm-hmm. linked to the robbery robbery and attempted murder in Utah. Um, they, you know, of course they don't know it at the time, but as they're going through all this stuff, how do you explain that? Yeah. <laughs> like, how do you explain that you have this pocket yeah. watch? That morning, the Sinclair family was shocked to learn that the man that they loved and knew was a cold-blooded killer. His son, when they were questioned, was found to be wearing a Rolex that was also linked to the Utah crime. Debbie, his wife, was extradited back to New Mexico. So in a weird twist, she um, was facing embezzlement charges of about $30,000. For what? Well, it turns out that the hunting store had failed to report numerous hunting licenses to the state and just pocketed the money. Oh. There was a warrant out for her arrest. Probably was a warrant out for his arrest, too. But, uh, you know, that's small fry compared to what they got now going on. I'm unsure after this where the kids went. 
where Pam and, and Michael were taken after that. They would have been in high school. Mm-hmm. So with mom, you know, in New Mexico facing charges, and I don't know where that left them. Not in a good place. Sinclair was taken to Cook Inlet Detention Facility in Anchorage, and over the course of 77 days, he was in the process of fighting extradition to Montana to face Mm -hmm. a trial on his charges. He was also interviewed by different investigators about, you know, the different various crimes that they think he committed. Yeah. He gave little to no information, and in the end, he, he would be of no help to anyone. In the early morning of October 30th, 1990, Sinclair was found unresponsive in his cell. Coward. Well, there's there's more to it. Attempts to resuscitate him were unsuccessful, and he was pronounced dead at a local Anchorage hospital. There was no evident cause of death. So, of course, there's an autopsy. Mm-hmm. And all that could conclusively find was that he had had a, uh, he died from heart failure possibly from having too much of his blood pressure medication in his system. They did find a cryptic note in his cell on a legal pad on his little desk that he was allowed to have about the guard bringing him his meds the night before instead of the nurse. They don't really know what that meant. There was eventually uh, something called an autopsy coroner's jury that convened. And it was ruled that they could not conclusively prove that any wrongdoing happened or that it was suicide. They just can't prove it. So in the days, you know, after he was arrested, he's on multiple medication and he was on 80 milligrams of this blood pressure medication. Mm -hmm. The doctor that saw him in the, in the jail lowered it to 40 and they claim the jail, all the records claim that he had no problems. His blood pressure was fine the entire time that he was there. Yeah. But he complained about it. So a few days prior, they raised it back up to 80. Somehow, he was overdosed. Or he overdosed, or it was a mistake that he was given too much. They they just can't conclu- like figure out conclusively and determine... Yes, he committed suicide or, you know, the nurse made a mistake or he just plain out. It, there was a, a, a mix up. Cannot conclusively determine anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So his death left everything unanswered. Everything. He was charged, but he was never convicted of those two murders and the yeah. attempted murder. The other possible crimes in various states never received closure, even though Sinclair remains the one and only suspect that they have in all of these other crimes. And and that's it. That is the incredibly long and sordid case of the coin shop killer, Charles mm. Sinclair. No real closure. No. That sucks. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it, it does. It sucks. It sucks all the way around. There's, there's victims on, uh, there's victims all over the place. Yeah. You know, all over the United States. Yeah. And then we won't, yeah, we won't even know the real truth of like what he would cop to or what he confessed to or. No, because when, you know, when they were talking to him, 
Um, it, at one point, the detective who was investigating the Linton's disappearance here in Washington, mm-hmm. the couple from California, yeah, uh, he went up and talked to him. And he said that the guy was just as cold as, as a snake on a rock. He oh. he would look at him dead in the eye and he he had, you know, no response. And the detective said, you know, we're not interested in charging you. You you've got all these other things we would contend with. We're mm-hmm. we're not charging you. We just want to know where the bodies are. Yeah. They have family in California that would like to bury them. Yeah. You know, to mourn and grieve and close out this this horrible event that's taken their parents from them. Yeah. He wouldn't give it up. He wouldn't give the information. Upstanding citizen, this man. Yeah. Which which kind of ties into, you know, my my fascination with us is that to his family, he was a great guy. He yeah. loved his kids. He was from and no reports that I can find was he ever abusive? Was he ever controlling? Was he ever um you know, it, there were no signs of him not being a loving and kind father and husband. So he had he had two lives. Right. How do you get that way? How do you do that? You know, how how are you able to be kind and compassionate to your family? You know, the community in New Mexico, outstanding guy, great member of the community, mm-hmm. business owner. Yeah. Buddy, how do you go from that to killing, to just cold-blooded murder for money? It was for money. There was no other reason. Yeah. You know, he definitely had an MO and he had he had motive. Motive was money. It was greed. And and that's something that um, you know, his daughter Pam mentioned is she she recognizes that all of those people paid with their lives to fund her life her family yeah and it's hard to reconcile that yeah that's a weird take on that i mean not a weird take but it's an interesting take from his daughter yeah to take that avenue oh yeah all these people's deaths funded my life yeah oh that's good yeah and and that's that's really why I was so fascinated with it because, you know, you can argue all day long that that um, the the most important victims here are the ones that lost their lives. Uh, of course, yeah. His family is a victim. They are victims. Yeah. He made them victims by putting them in this situation. Well, his kids. Yeah, well, I find it funny because the wife said that she had no idea that he was doing this, but she knew that he was coming home with, you know, Coins. shit that wasn't his. Yeah. You had she, to have fucking known. I, I can't believe that she didn't suspect it or know it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. yeah. But she claimed she didn't know. She claimed she had no idea. Mm-hmm. I, I, maybe she didn't, maybe she didn't want to know. So she didn't, she didn't know. You know what I mean? You believe something so much, you make it so. Whatever. I, yeah, I, that doesn't absolve her. I don't think. Cause I, I, you know, if you came home with. But she also sold $15,000 worth of coin. Like, where do you get these? 
Right, exactly. If you came home with that and you were like, hey, I need you to go to the pawn shop and sell this or the rare, rare coin dealership and sell these. Yeah. I'm like, are you fucking out of your mind? I'm not going down for whatever you did. I don't want mm. my name attached to that shit. Come on, honey. I'd do it for you. I, I wouldn't do it for you. <laughs> I wouldn't do it for anybody. I love you too. I mean, I love you, but I wouldn't, you're not going to catch me in that. I wrong is wrong. That's yeah. not mine. And it wasn't his. Yeah. And he had no business using that to evade of all things an arson charge. Yeah. I mean, really that's what that, you know, propelled all this. And then it snowballed. Yeah. You're you're you left town because you had an arson charge. It makes me think that there was more going on, that there was there was definitely, you know, they obviously she faced embezzlement charges. Um I there must have been more going on. Probably. Yeah. I mean it's obvious that he burnt it down. He been burnt down the business for the insurance money. Yeah. But uh that wasn't enough, I guess. Probably not. Once you get that taste of money. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that leads you to kill people, though, to think that that's okay. I, I just, I don't know. So, yeah, that's, that's what we got. It was, it was pretty uh, twisty. <laughs> all these this links, was. all these poten- potential crimes. And, and leading it back to Vacaville, California. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, Jesus, man. Yeah. It's not Vacaville, people. It's Vacaville. Vacaville. <laughs> yeah. And uh, were you living there at the time? At 86, we were on yeah. base still. We're at we're Travis. But yeah. We hadn't moved off base. Yeah. We were in the area. Yeah. But I hadn't heard about that stuff. No. I'm sure you wouldn't have. I, it, there was, I barely was able to pull up. Um, any information on these other crimes that he he possibly committed to the one in in utah the attempted murder and then the two in billings that were his last murders are are the ones to get all the recognition i think in 86 i I was in sixth grade i don't know maybe i was in sixth grade yeah yeah, it's it's just it's there's just so much to it. There's so much. There's you could argue uh, and look at everything from every which way, and it's it's just all the way around. Nobody wins here, you know. Nobody no. wins. No. People lost loved ones. People lost their lives. Families were ruined, and for what? Because you couldn't face that you were doing something wrong and and own up to your mistakes and your responsibilities as a man. Yeah. Yeah. So of course we want to thank you for sticking around with us throughout this episode. As always, we love to hear from you. We appreciate all of your support. Please let us know your thoughts on this one, you know, it, it, and watch the episode. Her, her interview was well done. And I, I mean, this is just a, you know, another sh- cheesy kind of, you know, true crime show that, you know, is, it, they're a dime a dozen nowadays, but I, some of them are well done. Her episode was well done. It was very well done, I think. And she really had some very insightful 
um, you know, just realizations and, and, and recognition of what all of this meant for her, not only at the time, but now as an adult. Yeah. And I always think that's more fascinating is like, if you have a firsthand account instead of just a bunch of witnesses, you know what I mean? Like right. she was actually there. It was happening around her. Yeah. And this was her first interview. Oh wow! I mean this this episode's not that old. Um, I, the son does not make it to public at all. He he's not ever discussed anything from what I can understand, and he's oh. just kind of fallen off the face fallen off the face of the earth. Um, she keeps a low profile, but this was the first time that she has openly spoke about this. Well, she probably had definitely time to reflect on everything yeah oh for sure yeah yeah so um, it's it's tough so let us know your thoughts we're you know we're genuinely curious this is i think this is an intriguing conversation to open about you know the do do these families qualify as a victim you know do they can you have sympathy for them? Is that even appropriate to have sympathy for this family of the, you know, of this criminal? Well, I do. I mean, at least the yeah. kids. Yeah. Maybe the wife. But. Yeah. So as always, stay safe, be kind, and stay out of the damn woods. Stay out of the woods. And don't go to the coin shops either. Coin shops are not safe. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye. What Happens in the Woods is an independent podcast and is managed and produced by Gospel for the Rebels, LLC. Research and content are presented by host Jessica, with all editing and producing done by your favorite resident techie, Bryce. We believe in transparency and will always list our sources and information in our episode notes. We are always looking for new cases and stories to tell. We welcome your interaction with us on Facebook and Instagram at WHIT Podcast and at Twitter, What Happens in the Woods, INT2. Or if you prefer, our website is whathappensinthewoods.com. The campfire is open to all. Thank you for your continued support of our podcast. If you love us and want to continue to hear us bring you episodes, please share and like us wherever you can. But the best way to help us grow is to hit all five stars and review us on whatever platform you get your podcast fix. Until we meet again, campers, stay safe and stay out of the damn woods.